Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Revision Path is looking for staff writers for our blog. We're going to have some new positions added in December, so check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, of course, I have to talk about our wonderful and amazing sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every single day. MailChimp just recently improved their automation features so you can do these really cool things like drip email campaigns, you can connect with shopping cart software, and create custom workflows to do all kinds of cool stuff. So sign up today and get your free account at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code GIVETHANKS and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and more starting at only $2 per item. They give away a selection of free goods every week, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. And if you see something else that you like, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We are still holding steady at 27 patrons right now for a combined total of $192 per month. We actually just kind of reconfigured the pledge level, so if you're pledging at higher levels, now you're able to get some really neat Revision Path swag. A huge thanks again, huge tremendous thanks for everyone who has already pledged their support and appreciation for the show through Patreon. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and that free Revision Path swag that I talked about, we're talking stickers, t-shirts, probably some more stuff in the future, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. Now for this week's interview, I talked with Gus Granger. Gus is the principal at 70KFT in Dallas, Texas. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Gus Granger. I'm the principal of 70KFT in Dallas. Talk to me about 70KFT, because for those that might not be listening, 70KFT is, is your firm. You started this yourself. Talk to me about how you got the idea to start 70KFT and what you're working on now. Got it. 70KFT started 12 years ago as a design firm, and it was it really was born out of my second year in college. And you know, as I started really embracing, I changed my major to design. Fell in love with the really the entire profession and the, the, the diversity of work, the, the impact it had. And it was a way for me to use my gifts as an artist and you know, make an impact in, in business. And so I knew early on at, at college that this was something I was going to do someday. But and, and start from that moment, you know, started studying 
business and in, in school along, along the same time as getting my design degree, but knew that I was going to need to spend time in the real world building up experience. And so I, I spent time working with agencies in Minneapolis, Dallas, and Chicago, and you know, really like building up that experience, working with great multinational brands so that really I get a good sense of, you know, how the machine worked. And, and really it was 12 years ago in August, you know, took that leap of faith and started the company. At that time, we were Stratosphere Creative. And that was actually the name I gave it back in college. I'm like, someday I'm going to create Stratosphere. And it's going to be about <laughs> big picture thinking, getting above problems and being, it's like being up in the sky. And when I started it, the company, that was our first name. And as we broadened into digital marketing and PR, the Stratosphere creative name, it really did sound like something which is more exclusively a design firm. And yeah. we'd had 70KFT as our short URL for Stratosphere creative. It's an abbreviation for 70,000 feet. And you know, with our own rebranding, we went to our nickname and it's been enigmatic and kind of fun and it's a great conversation starter. And so that's who we are. What kind of projects are you working on now with 70KFT? It's pretty diverse. Our cornerstone clients are in the, the cloud computing and infra- IT infrastructure space. And so we're doing work right now with Verizon and HP. And in the past, we've done work with VMware. But that experience in technology has opened you know, doors with mid-sized companies and startups that brands of many sizes and, and specialty within technology space are actually coming to us because of our experience and knowledge in marketing and, and a B2B level. So with that being our foundation, there's, we have a great client that's opening you know, like restaurants, a, a bunch of like juice bars. And we've been mm-hmm. working on their identity and packaging and interior design for that. We have could grief this project that we did with Studio 360 over the summer, you know, designing a symbol for the modern South. That was a pro bono project, despite what Rush Limbaugh says. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty diverse mix, and I think you know where you know there are shops that just choose to pick a very narrow vertical and just specialize there. It's been important to make sure that we've got a diverse base of work to keep, you know, our team here. There's over 35 of us here in downtown Dallas that being able to get your brain working around different problems is important. And then, and that, then that's no different for, you know, the great work that we do in, in the cloud computing and IT infrastructure space that, you know, that we can pivot and, you know, work on an exhibit for the Dallas Holocaust Museum, or that we can work on a, a medical startup that, that shifting gears like that's important to keeping everyone creative and fresh thinking going throughout our processes. So I definitely want to talk about that Studio 360 project. But before we get to that, I kind of want to spend just a little more time on, I guess, you and the business yourself. So as principal, what's kind of your typical day to day with the company? What do you do? Well, these days, when I started it, I was a designer. Then I was wearing the designer hat and the developer hat. Then I was wearing the designer hat, the developer hat, and the account manager hat. Sometimes I was wearing the intern hat. Sometimes I'm the janitor hat. It just—it's like, and as you grow, you start taking off those hats, and you're giving those to people that are gonna. I'm gonna now. I have a developer. Now I've got an account manager who's gonna do this. Now I've got writers. These days, I have. There are times that I'm playing the role of creative director. There are times that I'm in the role of business development. 
There are times that I'm really focused on just managing the agency itself, which is completely different than design, that it's really more about just, just managing a small business. And the mix of those three are, you know, really what it, on a day in day out basis is, you know, kind of like what my, my list of appointments are kind of like spread out amongst, you know, those three types of things. And sometimes that ends up being, I'm playing the role of amateur psychologist, <laughs> camp counselor, RA, it just all depends. So you've got to love people and, you know, love the team that you've built and be part of making sure this is a positive, encouraging place to work. And that's as much a priority as anything else with what I'm doing every day. How did you first kind of start with building your team? I know that we've got a lot of entrepreneurs that listen and they may have, you know, maybe a small shop where they're running themselves or maybe they have a few people. But what's kind of been your strategy to building 70 KFT to where it is now with such a large team? I mean, it really grew out of the same principles as when it was just me by myself. And the first hire that I made was a developer. I was designing and developing sites myself that was much simpler back then. It was really more involved with using Dreamweaver and Flash and some minor coding. But as more projects kind of came in, that I would have to be having to contract out development. And it took me taking a look back and looking at how much work that I actually contracted out to developers. And I realized that as a business owner, I could make more money by having that development in-house. And the work will be better integrated with the design by having a developer that would be in-house. That was the moment where I decided, all right, I will hire a developer and it will be the two of us. And so now we're more profitable and we can continue to grow. And it's a bit different as you start growing the next level to, you know, an account manager, but you're having to make go through a kind of a similar calculus where I know that my time is better spent guiding the creative vision of the project mm-hmm. than managing the relationships with the clients. I do a great job with that, but that's not my entire career has not been built up in in that. That right. you start to see that you know it's going to be more effective for me to have a specialist to take care of this growing body of work and to take care of these relationships, so that I can be more focused on doing what I do best. And as it goes, when I developed, we kind of became a capacity, and we had to start farming work out. We allowed the trend of the work, and in the early days, it was a lot of project based work, and so you can't. It's more difficult to plan out a payroll against projects that, you know, may be on a three to four month cycle, but you kind of have to look at the rhythm of, of opportunity that comes into your shop to see that, you know, we have a pretty good trend of ongoing work which comes in. And the goal, you know, for growth is, you know, when you can kind of convert some of those regular relationships to a retained relationship where you can actually have a one to two year contract in place that now once you kind of transition from a small team that might be rooted in project work when that becomes a predictable source of income that is you know hopefully something which is renewable you can make you know more concrete hiring decisions which will, with less risk I like what you said about sort of having the amount of work kind of guide how the business grows cuz I think when you're kind of just starting out as an entrepreneur releasing that control over all those things can sometimes be a challenge. Like you said, you have all these different hats that you're wearing and you're, you're talking with the client, but you're also designing and you're also developing. And sometimes I I mean, I can even speak personally, like that was the the point when I knew I had to sort of release some control over some things because I knew that I was better served. Like you said, working on one particular part and not necessarily 
all parts of the business or all parts even of a project. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's letting go, which is that's it's tough. It's you know, it's it's a leap of faith when you've been doing it all yourself that, you know, I think that for me, the biggest transition was the first time that I hired a creative director because, you know, I'm like, all right, gosh, I've been doing this for years and all the work has had, you know, my stamp of like approval and and I've guided all the way through. And here I'm hiring somebody else that's going to, you know, now the work is going to be their baby. That's a big leap of faith. There's a lot of trust which goes into that. And I mean, that's the case with everything. But I think for me and my background, you know, that dynamic definitely played itself out there. But it's something that I'm comfortable with now. But that is, you know, finding the right people, making sure that you have that ongoing work, you know, coming in. But, you know, finding someone that you can work well with and you can have a good, strong, trusting relationship is essential in order for it to work out. So one thing that I want to speak about is hiring. I know that there are a lot of tech companies and design companies and design firms and ad agencies, et cetera, that have talked about kind of this shortage of talent in the industry when it comes to, you know, kind of hiring new people. For you, when it's come down to building the business and building 70 KFT, have you been able to pull a lot kind of from the local, I guess, design scene in terms of people that would come in and work for you? Like what's kind of been the the hiring process like? Has it been difficult? It depends on the role, but yeah, it's not easy. I'll just say that because it's more than just having a great body of work. And you know, we, we're you know we can talk specifically with designers, but we have developers and writers and account managers and PR specialists and digital marketing specialists. That you know, I mentioned earlier the importance of the atmosphere and the actual culture of the office. That's something that you have to vet out as well. And you could bring in somebody that has the perfect body of work and they could be a complete monster and make your workplace a toxic place for everyone to be. And you've got to make sure that, you know, you're finding the, the right chemistry there amongst people. But from just finding talent generally, we don't restrict our hiring to Dallas. And like we've relocated people from all over the country for that very reason. I mentioned that chemistry is important and experience is important. We, we just, you know, hired a guy f- to manage our account management group from New York, and we've brought in designers and writers from Alabama and Michigan. It really doesn't matter to that end. It's just about finding, you know, the right skill set. But specifically to, you know, a shortage of talent in, in the technology space, it's most aggressive and more competitive with developers. And that's a space where if we are looking for the top tier talent that we need, we've actually found that we've have to go through agencies because they are just so aggressively sought out that we've had to actually just go through through like a headhunting agency or a talent agency that will bring those people to us because they have already identified the best folks and then they get their commissions on top of that. So it's definitely more cost effective for you to, to find those folks on your own. But you know, when you're, you don't spend all of your time trying to find talent and trying to hire talent you're going to be outrun in that race by the professionals that know that people with that particular skill set are extremely sought after. And so that's the area where it's most difficult. Well, that's true. And also, I mean, aside from from talent, of course, the talent is important. One factor that is, I, I think, really being taken into account a lot more than it used to be is diversity. Yep. You know, the nebulous concept, the nebulous cloud of diversity, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, you know, ableness, et cetera. Yep that also becomes kind of a part of the mix too, which 
I feel probably makes hiring just that much harder because you want the talent, but then you also hopefully want to make sure that you're not building kind of this homogenous workspace and therefore breeding a certain culture that might not be conducive to your company or to your clients or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a high priority, you know, for us. And it just adds a whole other layer of it's just another key goal that yeah. needs to be part of it. And one that, you know, we're we don't hit a hundred percent of the time. And it's never been a goal to be like, all right, we're gonna make sure that every single person in this office is a minority background or anything, but that, you know, that we're actively seeking out you know, people with diverse backgrounds, but we've we're, we're but usually we're looking at like we've got a giant project which is coming up in six weeks. We've got to get mm-hmm. someone in here, and and if it's about the success and health of the agency through you know being able to handle that project versus waiting another four to six weeks to get another more diverse candidates, that tension is a real one and something I think everyone is trying to you know to perfect. And I'm not sure that people that are far removed from that whole process really realize that. So, for example, like on on Twitter, you know, Twitter, of course, people will mention things about, well, why don't they just hire more brown people? Why don't they just hire more black people? Like, it's not that simple. (laughs) It's not that simple of a proposition to just, oh, I'm going to just hire more more people of color. There's a I see this also now because I tend to work sometimes with companies that are trying to do this sort of similar thing. You can sort of see what the candidate pool looks like. And as much as, of course, you would like to have a diverse candidate pool so you can bring in diverse candidates, it's just not as simple, I think, as people realize. It's not a field of dreams situation where if you build it, they will come. Like if you put the job posting out there, it's not necessarily known that you know people will apply for it, at least not the people that you want to apply for it. Right. So. It's a delicate dance, and most people that I've talked with that do hiring have <laughs> confided with me both publicly and privately. Like, it's hard. Well, it's not as simple as, oh, we're just going to hire three black developers. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> because it's they are out there, but I think that the talent pool is limited, but there are, like, I really think there are enough companies, large and smaller, that have this as a priority, that the competition for the like top tier, which is what we are looking for in every role, that people that are at their A game that are also have a diverse background of any sort, they already have a job and they're probably being well paid. Yeah, they're in high demand. Yeah, not because who they are, but it's like it's you know more and more companies are waking up to this being a priority, and talent recruiters are told to be like, we can't just have another, you know, homogenous group paraded in here. And so, you know, we may be, we work at the same level as agencies, you know, 10 times our size, but we've got to compete with the talent development and recruitment organization of agencies 10 times our size. And for me, I feel like the, the, the greatest thing that, you know, we can do is just have awareness that, you know, hopefully people from just underrepresented groups, even in our office, when we put up a post that we're hiring that, you know, hopefully they'll come and let us know if they're out there. And we'll do that all that we can to try and find them and get in front of them as well. But in some ways, it's got to go both ways. Right. What is kind of in the future now for 70KFT? You know, we are continuing to like grow and solidify our space here in Dallas. We're located in Dallas because it's a central location for the country. So there's not a that we're no more than two to three hours away from anywhere. 
because we've got a great airport here that we can kind of like jump off and you know I was in Connecticut for meetings you know a couple of weeks ago or Virginia there we can go out to the west coast it's just really easy to get anywhere that we're starting to get into app development and in the future I'd like to see us bring on an advertising practice area that our really unique approach to the integrated practice areas to use our digital marketing team to make our website work more effective that you know we're actually able to inform our online work with really you know expert social media ex- expertise not because we sent somebody to a social media workshop because we have trained certified social media professionals that are on our staff that as we start growing into you know radio and broadcast advertising which is hopefully in our you know soon to be had future and mobile app development that our clients are going to be able to benefit from a team of experts that know the importance of each of those core disciplines informing the other, which doesn't happen a lot. And for our, in the, in the large agency world, our a relatively small group has, we've been doing a lot of great work and punching above our, our weight, if that's the expression, because of it. And so I'd like to see that increase. Speaking of radio, and you, you mentioned this earlier, you were recently tasked by Studio 360 to design a new symbol for the South. And it's a, it's a pretty big project. I mean, we'll have a link to it in the show notes for people to check it out. It gained a lot of buzz, some positive, some negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk to me about like how you got involved with the project, what the the whole planning and creative process was like and some of the feedback that you've gotten. Well, the producers for Studio 360 were, you know, put out a call for agencies in the South that, you know, would be interested in taking on this challenge of coming up with a new symbol to represent the modern South. And it was from the context of in their language and in, in the wake of the Confederate flag controversy following the shootings in Charleston what is a, a symbol which, which should be representing the South and representing the modern South. And so we had those conversations with them. And it, it was from the background of our team, having great roots, strong, proud roots here in the South, from even with ancestors on both sides of Civil War conflict, which we don't believe is, is relevant to telling the story of the modern South, that the background experience of the team and passion for the subject had us uniquely qualified to take this project on with the amount of seriousness and commitment that it deserved. And so they selected us and we did an interview with them at the beginning of the process back over the summer. And we spent, gosh, I guess about six to eight weeks just kind of like taking on the project. And, you know, again, the focus being this is not about designing some type of new symbol for the Confederacy or replacing us be, you know, trying to replace an old symbol that ultimately we took a step back and be like, and realized this is that so long as this area is known as the South and people embrace identity as Southerners, that essentially it is a brand that is not being managed, that doesn't have a symbol with the type of like meaning and definition, which has the benefit of being associated with the positive experiences of, you know, the last 150 years since that old conflict, since that symbol, which people tend to, for good or bad, associate with the South. So we wanted to create something new to bring to that conversation, and that's what we did. And what has some of the feedback been? It's been overwhelmingly both positive and <laughs> negative in that. But I think that's some of what we, we realized. No matter how you kind of come forward 
with this, you know, that there are folks that are very passionate about their Southern heritage and the Confederate flag and their experience with that, that, you know, when someone comes forward with something new to represent the South, they feel threatened. And that it is, and that was never anything that was part of the project or the intent. But we knew kind of going into it that that was going to be the way certain folks were going to react. And it definitely took off from there. But from the first day that the project went out, that it was tremendous for us to be getting great encouragement from like AIGA under consideration to design week blog in the UK, that the activity over social media for folks that actually care about both the South and the design community was just so affirming and rewarding. And, but yeah, of course there was, you know, the predictable lashback against those who felt like that this was threatening or somehow criticizing their heritage and that was, or their experience with the old flag, the old symbol, which we really didn't want to have anything to, to do with that. And then this project really, it wasn't about that or them. I think one of the most interesting pieces of feedback that I saw was that people did not think that this could have came from the South, which I don't know if that's because people generally, when they think of design, they don't think of the South generally as a, I feel like the South already has its own, of course, kind of stereotypes about the people that live here. Like we're slow, we're not educated, we're backwards, all this kind of stuff. So when I saw some of that feedback coming back, like, well, this had to have come from some like, latte sipping mm-hmm. new york city agency like why couldn't it have have come from the south do you think the south is kind of underrated when it comes to design oh absolutely and i think that in dallas there's a tremendously strong you know creative community here going back decades with you know a lot of it kind of like stems out of the the richards group and the the amazing talent which came out of that agency but I think just big picture wise, there's the stereotypes of the South or and Southerners are, you know, pretty prevalent and it's unfair. And that you, you go into what's happening in places like Dallas and Atlanta and even, you know, areas like Birmingham and New Orleans and Austin and San Antonio and all these, there's like, I'm leaving out a lot of really great places that there's really strong work that's happening in places, but there's even, it's a national and even in some ways, you know, a global stereotype which goes back to this old conflict, the old symbol that disproportionately negative stereotype gets associated with everybody that lives in this region. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was funny as we started looking at the, some of the more like negative things which went viral in right-wing blogs that by the time that it had filtered up to Rush Limbaugh and his ilk, the project was paid for by taxpayer dollars by some Northeast liberals looking to tell Southerners what to do. And it's like every aspect of it, other than the fact that it was completely wrong and backwards. And, but sadly, not surprising because the sensationalism is great for earning views and clicks and ratings. And it's something that was, uh, it's easy to kind of like hijack and sensationalize to whatever political agenda you want to bring into because it is something that people are very passionate about on both sides of the issue. What did you and your team learn after that project? The key thing that I think we learned is how quickly we can lose control over the narrative. That, you know, we put a lot of effort into telling the story clearly. We put up a website, thesouth.us, that 
in being firm in that we've created this symbol to represent the modern South. And you have media outlets will write a great positive review of the project. The headline ends up being 70 KFT creates replacement for a Confederate flag and that it becomes this. They will take this activist bent and telling the story. And then suddenly you've got people that are like, hell no, you're not making replace my flag or whatever that it becomes. That's again, we're trying to step away from telling people what to do and we're creating something new. And mm-hmm. that's something which kind of I've recently liked the analogy of what car makers do. We're making new cars. We're not making replacement cars. And that's been an, an important thing that if somebody chooses to take something down or to fly this symbol or whatever because they have more affinity with it, great. That there are my personal feelings about the South. There are my personal feelings about the Confederate flag, which this project is not specifically about that. You know, we had to spend a lot of time in doing our background work for the project in Southern history and Southern symbols. And yes, a big part of that is about, you know, it's, it's history and conflict. The whole reason why we have this term, the South, is because of the Civil War. And my personal experience with that symbol and emotions around that drove the interest in taking on the project so that we can create something new that could be embraced by everyone down here. And, you know, granted, it was just an academic exercise, but there are a lot of people out there that want to see it become bigger and, you know, more widely embraced, and that's exciting. But it's a topic that, that people are hyper-passionate about. We've had We've had random phone calls of enthusiastic support, and we've had random phone calls of enthusiastic dissent, bordering on threats. There's no regret. It's an important discussion to be had for the very reason, the same stereotypes that you mentioned of the South, that even as we, the other part of the project was we did related to the rebel storytelling and redefining that and taking that term back to really shine light on Southerners that were game-changing to the world, that because of the negative stereotypes for the South, those people tend to not be associated with the South, period. So mm-hmm. broadening that story of the Southern experience and modern Southern storytelling was a priority for this project. And again, to your question, we saw how quickly you can lose control over that because people's passions will, you know, the energy behind that will outdrive anything. Well, one thing that I, I picked up on, you know, both from the positive and negative kind of reactions to all of this is that design is still something that is very powerful, that is capable of stirring up deep emotion within people, you know, both good and bad. No, absolutely. Honestly, that which was fascinating in going into like this, the passion that people hold around this is it's all about design. It's all brand. And Mm -hmm. that we had, whether we're featured in Fast Company or, you know, the largest media outlet in Fast in Alabama, that the attention from every angle is organizations which are not normally writing about design or branding, when they're talking about this project, they're talking about design and branding. And yeah. the folks that are embracing it or having a conversation about it, the awareness of it has been amazing. I've, I've run into folks that I have, hadn't been engaging with personally on in the social media that, you know, like they've been talking about it. They didn't know we did it. And they were like, oh, yeah, you got to that. And, you know, I was having a conversation with this with my grandmother and my friends or that it's fascinating how just the overall awareness of the project has been and, and the conversations that have been spurred around it and important conversations, I believe. And I think the fact that, you know, we've been part of making those discussions happen is uh, something that I'm proud of this team's making that or being part of making that happen. Earlier, you spoke about the fact that Dallas has this really strong design scene. And I feel like you've contributed to that in a way also because you were 
at one point in time, the president of the AIGA Dallas chapter there. Yes. What was your tenure like when you were, were your president? It's a lot of work, but it's it's rewarding work. AIGA was in, important for my career, really even going back into college and helping open up the my exposure to the world of design broader than what the my actual school may have been exposing me to, which was great. Uh, I went to um, the design program at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. But, you know, they have a, an AIGA chapter and they were bringing speakers to Des Moines. They were bringing speakers to our school, a variety of different, you know, design programs that there's reading about people and there's being able to actually just sit down and talk to them or listen to them speak and get their business cards and go and visit them at their studio or getting a diverse group of designers together to talk about a different topic at some type of like workshop that so much of success in this or any profession is hinged on who knows you and who you know that to be able to take that down and to steal that down to the design community and be able to meet people that care passionately about their job enough to the point that they want to come together with other designers and help improve their own skills and help improve the the skills of the folks that they're there at whatever that is that now you have something very much in common with everyone else when you came to that event and you can start to expand your own network and expand your own network, expand your own skills and give you an opportunity to give back. And, you know, my tenure on the board, AIJ locally, that was a way for me to, to give back and contribute to this organization, which I hold dear and be a key part of um, getting me to this point. And so, yeah, and so that's where I've, why I was embraced continuing my role in helping give back with the diversity inclusion board for the national AIGA. And we're trying to really affect change in the woeful lack of diversity that was happening in this profession. Yeah, I was, I probably should have mentioned at the top of the interview that, yeah, we're both on that same task force. And one of the, I mean, there are several initiatives that we're kind of all working on all the task force members. One that we're kind of both working on is about getting AIGA student groups in HBCUs. And as you sort of spoke earlier about the fact that when you were in college, there was a student group there and it really sort of helped open your eyes about the industry and learn about new people and new perspectives and things like that. Now I get a better sense from you about why this is so important to you. Aside from your tenure as an AIGA chapter president, I get a better sense of that of why it's so important. It's critical. And I, I feel like AIGA student groups would make any program stronger and more effective. If, if anything else, students should be engaged just selfishly to network with professionals in their community to help them get an eventual job, to get discounts on software and other things which, which membership provides you through AIGA. And like the, the list of things are like pretty long that from a selfish standpoint, you can start to benefit but also student groups, you've got your local professional chapter, which will be allowing, giving them budget to be able to put on their own programming, that they're growing as leaders in the design profession that's going to help you know, people take on a variety of different things and activities while you're in college to build up your resume and to build experience. That says a lot that I can look at a candidate and that they cared enough about this profession to be an advocate for it and to create and promote and put on events and on their campus for this profession is like that says a lot about the individual. 
And those student groups, you know, they have faculty advisors, but, you know, they can run pretty much autonomously. And mm-hmm. that is great for the profession and it's great for the students. And so, yeah, I've been a, a big cheerleader for that. And I think HBCU specifically with design programs should be, be taking advantage of this, which I think is a, you know, really it's like a, a secret weapon for helping make their graduates more, more employable and just being stronger professionals. Right. One, I guess, if there is a point of dissension that I've gotten when I've talked with faculty and with students at HBCUs is the cost. And to be clear, the cost, I mean, I haven't been a college student in a long time, so I'm probably speaking from a pretty myopic viewpoint here. But it's for students, I think it's $50 yeah. for a year. Yes. it's Yeah, $50 for an annual membership, which in the grand scheme of things, you're paying more for a pair of tennis shoes, concert tickets, a video game, a book, et cetera, a book, yeah. right? Especially textbooks. Oh my God. Yeah. You're definitely paying more for those things than for um, a student membership at AIGA, but also there's, and this is something that I've talked about with, you know, some of the top brass at AIGA are kind of the, the restrictions around the group. So for example, the student group has to have, I think it's 10 students and a faculty advisor. But at some of these HBCUs, the arts programs or the design programs are so small, they may not even have that many students. And so they can't really get a student group started because they don't have that minimum of 10 students to really get it going. Not saying that the students aren't interested, but they may not meet that criteria along kind of another level. So I don't know if AIJ will kind of change that for HBCUs, if they should change it for HBCUs. But I know that there are probably some other provisions that may need to come into play to get more HBCUs involved with AIGA. Also, because a lot of them are in smaller towns that might be away from larger chapters, like I'm thinking specifically Jackson State University is in Jackson, Mississippi. There are, I don't think there are any chapters of AIGA in Mississippi. I believe the closest one geographically is in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge. I think then, and that would to me make it even more important that they be active at that level because they will be supported by the Baton Rouge chapter and they would be also have support from the national organization to make sure that they can be effective in just positive accelerating experience for the design students that are there. And to your, your headcount question, you make there's, yeah, I mean, at some level, if there's only five students and, you know, they're going to put on programming for themselves, if there becomes a point like, all right, if there's just not enough people, that sounds like a school which barely has a design program in the first place. But there's also, I know there's, you know, those programs where they have folks that are receiving design training or they are passionate about design that, you know, they could be receiving, getting membership from advertising programs. And, you know, some folks will have more magazine students that it's like there's times that there's crossover and they be able to draw talent in that way and you know or there also could be folks that are driven towards commercial illustration that has some relevance to the AIGA discussion that they could reach out if they're they're taxed for kind of reaching a, a, a good number of um, people that can participate in doing so but ultimately if they're hopefully near some place that a city where there is an, an active AIGA chapter if they can't do a group themselves then just get involved and go out and engage some events. And we maintain AIGA memberships of the design department here at 70KFT, that it's a key way to maintain professional development and just exposing you to new ways of thinking, new ways of 
approaching the craft that browsing blogs and just websites is it's it's com- a completely different exposure and experience than actually going out and engaging with human beings. Right, like being a member, it helps you out more than doing nothing essentially. Oh yeah. And to, yeah. to the the cost point, it's like it's instant 50 you are going to get thousands and thousands of more value out of an AIGA membership than textbook or a pair of shoes that if that's going to open the door for your next job, like what is the salary that it, those are the types of experiences that are coming through being involved in this, this professional community that is completely run by volunteers. And that's what makes the, the student groups great as well, that this isn't about signing up to have some anonymous group of professionals away, to, cities away, tell you what to do or you know, some smoke-filled room in New York tell you how to put things on that it's like, all right, what is your community at your school? What are you curious about? You know, like, who are some of your design heroes? What would you like to try to invite to come and like speak to your class? And that you, now you're tapped into 70 chapters across the country that you might be able to just like pick up a phone and be able to have that entire group's like design hero come out and, you know, speak to them for an afternoon. That AIJ opens doors like that, and which is what another thing which I just love about the profession is how really like warm and encouraging people tend to be. That you know, like I've run into a few outliers, but for the most part, you know, like folks are more than happy to just have a conversation or love to be invited to come out and speak, and that students can use that or just take advantage of that aspect of things through student groups to help get them ahead and make them stronger designers is it's a layup to me. So yeah. And for people listening, this is not a sponsored AIGA thing. <laughs> I mean, both of us have a vested interest in it because we're on the task force and, and you probably more so than I because you've been a longtime member and you've been a chapter president. I just joined AIGA last year. And before that, my background's in math and science and I didn't go to art school or anything like that, but I always had an interest in design mm-hmm. and had been told from other people who were AIGA members, oh, oh, it's only for art students, et cetera. And it wasn't until... Geez, like like last year, honestly, cause that I decided I wanted to get into it, mainly because I heard about the task force. I interviewed Antoinette Carroll, mm-hmm. who's the current chair. I in- interviewed her for the show, and she was like, yeah, you should join. I'm like, yeah, but I was like, I'm not really like art school designer, because I had that perception that it was only for a certain type of person, no. you know, membership in the group, but design as a whole serves everyone, yeah. and so it would make sense that the organization would also have such a a same or a similar open type of policy. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I think whether, you know, people come into design from a variety of different backgrounds and, you know, some folks in, that are members are actual design practitioners, some may be strategists, some may be account managers that if you care about design, if that's the center of your profession or or even if you're just a fan, getting involved with the organization is is more than welcome to you. And so, anyway, I'll turn off the AIGA no, we're and we're switching gears because this actually is a good segue. How did you come into design? It was by accident, actually. I think you know I grew up being the kid that was known that was the great drawer, and in, to use elementary school language, and Gus could draw anything, and I was encouraged in that by my parents. My mother was a gifted artist and actually taught art for some time, and actually worked briefly in an ad agency in D.C. after. She finished school at Howard University. It's where my parents met. And I was blessed to you know, always be encouraged with that gift that I had through my schooling. And when I went off to college, 
I was going to be an illustrator. I was studying illustration. There was a point during high school I was decided I was going to be a comic book artist, and I was very serious about that. And, you know, I, I was winning competitions at comic book conventions, and, like, that was my whole universe. And I think it was at college when training for illustration and learning about illustrators that I started learning about designers that had their background in illustration. And, you know, people like Rand and Milton Glaser that I'm like, well, design sounds relevant for these illustrators that went on to design, of course. And I should at least take, I should probably take a design course because if nothing else as an illustrator, I'm going to be hired by designers and I should kind of know what their game is all about. And from that first design course, it just took, I was hooked and like they, those same people, I realized, you know, I can still be an illustrator and I can be a designer and, you know, this design training was really just going to make me more marketable and able to make a good living. But it was also something that I loved and was fascinated about and it was going to be a way for me to be able to pursue my just curiosity about the world and hopefully get paid for it. That was really it from early on in college. I just switched and, you know, I've been stuck ever since. Who have been some of the people that have mentored you throughout this journey? There's been a, a number. The first being, you know, the director of our design program at Drake University is a man named of, by the name of Doug Byers. He's now at USC in um, their actually he's helping managing design for the school itself and is not teaching. But, you know, I've had creative directors along the way. As I mentioned, you know, I knew I wanted to create my own design firm someday. So I spent a lot of time with the folks that were um, either creative directors or running agencies. And so my first creative director was Bruce Edwards, who's now running an agency in the Minneapolis area called Fame. And, you know, when I came down to Dallas, I spent a number of years working in an agency called Group Baronet. And that's where I met a man named Willie Baronet. And he's been a really big influence on me both as a creative professional, but also just what he just ran a great culture and and really showed how to produce great work and maintain a good balance with life and prioritizing people and culture and not just working folks to the bone. That was a really important thing as well. I mean, those are like the, some of the, the key names that kind of like come out. It's just really like mentors. But I think after leaving Dallas, I spent time working in Chicago at VSA Partners and there I, I was able to work with folks that I'd looked up to since I was in college, like Dana Arnett and Kurt Schreiber. And there are so many others that are there that, you know, just really showed me what the experience was of working in the design profession at that level. And as where I had the confidence to go off on my own. So, and really going back to the discussion for a few minutes ago, that it was getting that first exposure to VSA came through an AIG event in college. And so hmm. that, again, eventually, you know, hope helped open doors to the last job that I took from another company before starting this one. What motivates you to do like the work that you do? My kids, my family. I think at this point, I'm really just driven and making having a great time with them and creating just, you know, you know, doing a great job at work so we can, you know, have a decent living and, you know, I can spend a great time with them. And, you know, I'm health, I also have a healthy competitive spirit with within the profession itself. And everyone likes to, like, win awards and win accounts. And that, you know, so my as much as the success of, you know, like my kids, that my, my family at home motivates me, the work family here motivates me as well because I love seeing them succeed. 
and encouraging them to get past their own, what they saw as their own limits to accomplish tremendous things that, you know, seeing those lights go off is in their mind when they, you know, figure out a problem and, you know, had to, just to see that being embraced and produced by our clients. That's where my motivation is. It's exciting and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Now you have a, a unique perspective being a designer, being a principal of a firm, and then also being someone that has been kind of a pillar in your local community for design. For someone that is looking to get into this industry or for someone that's just in this industry now and kind of needs to know what they need to do to get to the next level, aside from technical skills, what skills do you think someone needs in this industry? Curiosity and a passion for problem solving. You mentioned the technical skills, which are important, but I feel like learning software is secondary to being able to just understand, you know, a business problem and coming up with creative solutions for addressing it. And the form that those solutions could take could be a website, it could be an ad, it could be an app, it could be somebody walking around the street with a sandwich board, that being able to think through solutions to problems before ever going near a computer is the most important skill to be developed because I think too many people are getting sold a bill of goods that learning the Adobe Creative Suite is what graphic design is. And that is the equivalent to me saying that learning how to use hammer and nails is the equivalent of becoming an architect. And I see that there's a lot of getting out of that. There's a need to get people out of that mentality because there's this gap of teaching which is happening to really understand the history of the profession, the journey to creating, you know, really strong, impactful work that is beyond or above technical skills. It gets into exploring ideas and finding ways to understand people, connect with them at an emotional level to motivate them to do something, whether it's to buy or to get involved with the cause, that those are things that have nothing to do with software or pen and paper. Those are just the tools by which we express those ideas. And that's the starting point. And usually the, the journey to that is getting through like a, a, a good program or finding you know good mentors to help develop those skills. Speaking of that, I mean, I know that right now in the industry, there's always a lot of talk about internships and apprenticeships and things like that, as it sort of, I think, is a little bit tangential to the diversity conversation in design. Certainly, diversity in tech is more, at least from what I can see in the media, it's definitely talked about more. Not so much diversity in in design. So what do you think we can do to, I guess, inspire that next generation to look at design as something that they can be a part of? It's going to have to start at the high school level. I don't think there's enough people that are choosing design as a career path early on. And there has to be support throughout that journey through whether it's the strength of the program that they're joining or through organizations along the way. We mentioned one earlier that and internships, you know, from my perspective, are essential to helping to that journey as well. And that give people the ability to have some professional experience, the ability to take chance and to figure out where they, what type of place they'd like to work before graduating from their design school and entering the job market, 
that you've gone through some of the trial and error of different types of workplaces, you know, before you've even gotten out of school, that it does all go back to awareness. And I think that getting more talented people to choose design as a profession at the high school and college level is going to help bring more more talent into the workforce. And from all the discussions that we've been having, let's say all the discussions we've been having in the task force, but and like even whether it's in the task force or even conversations I've been having with friends and peers, it really does seem like that's a common thread. Well, also, I think, you know, there needs to be, and, and it's sort of to your point, there has to be that mentorship and reaching back and giving back to the community yeah. from like the current crop of working professional designers, because it's one thing to have sort of gone through the gauntlet before we've had all this mentorship and things like that to get where we are now, but then to really sort of help sustain the industry in the future, like reaching back and pulling up and making sure that the next generation of designers is better equipped, you know, in terms of knowledge and tools, et cetera, than, than we were kind of coming up. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's great work going on. You know, I feel like a lot of different cities have different programs and things going on like that. I know there's Project Osmosis in Chicago. Here in Dallas, there's a Marcus Graham project that is, it's more on the advertising side of things, but is doing just really tremendous work in helping develop young talent in the advertising industry. And, you know, and I've um, been involved with mentoring some of the um, students that are part of that program. But yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, just finding every opportunity for professionals that are working in space to reach back and be part of reversing this negative trend that has African-Americans so woefully underrepresented in our profession is it's got to be a priority for anyone who takes affecting change seriously. Right. Well, Gus, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Our web address is 70kft.com. That is 70k is in kite, f is in frank, t is in tree. Dot com And yeah, that's also our Twitter handle and we're pretty easy to find on Facebook as well and Instagram. All right. Sounds good. Well, Gus Granger, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you are super busy running the team over at 70KFT. I think you gave a lot of really great information about sort of how you got started and how you built your business. It was also good to hear your perspective on how the the Studio 360 project went that was sort of different from all of the the crazy feedback and everything. And of course, all of the wonderful information about AIGA. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Maurice, for having me. And um, thank you for, you know, having this podcast in the first place. It's important work. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Gus Granger. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Gus and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code GIVETHANKS at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to Creative Market and pick up those six free goods that are available for free every week 
And if you see something else that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.